Welcome to Future Directions, a podcast about research. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Omer Inan to talk about his work in non-invasive physiological sensing and modulation. I have a feeling this area of research is going to grow rapidly in the next few years because it's so useful and it really has the potential of changing a lot of lives. This is a very multidisciplinary field and I really enjoyed learning more about it, so I hope you do too. Thanks so much for being here. Sure, happy to do it. So you got your PhD in electrical engineering at Stanford. And so I'm very curious about your journey because the work that you do to me is not what I would consider typical electrical engineering work. I would think of it more as biomedical engineering. But tell me more about your journey. It's a it's a great question. So uh, first of all, I think what we think of as electrical or computer or mechanical or aerospace engineering is changing all the time. But that said, actually, if you go back, before there were ever biomedical engineering departments, the people doing engineering related to bio and related to medical were in electrical engineering and mechanical engineering and industrial engineering departments. And in fact, there were a large number of people doing that. So there's always been an interest in trying to apply electrical engineering principles to health and medicine and Mm -hmm. to learning more about biology. And it's, it's really just an application that drives the interest in advancing the field of electrical engineering. But while doing so, you're also making some impact on humans and hopefully improving quality of care and life for patients. So it's always been an interest of mine. Um, And I'm an adjunct in biomedical engineering, so I have some relation still to that department. Um, But I think that, that one of the most interesting areas in electrical engineering and in engineering overall is the application of engineering to health. Mm-hmm. And now you're an associate professor in the School of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Georgia Tech. And your lab works on designing medical devices for patient care. So can you just briefly tell me more about that? Sure, absolutely. So the area that we find really interesting is non-invasive physiological sensing and modulation. That's really the topic that I use to describe my lab succinctly. And the reason for that is that In many cases, there are implantable devices or surgical techniques or very invasive sorts of procedures that can lead to improving care. But also, in many cases, those aren't practical. So if you want something that's going to be applicable to a large population of patients and people, and also applied more to well-being and maybe disease prevention rather than just treatment, then I think non-invasive solutions are a really exciting way to go. You can imagine, though, that if you're working on non-invasive sensing, then you run into a lot more challenges. <laughs> yeah. If you can, for example, get an electrode around a nerve, then you'll be able to exactly stimulate that nerve. And in practice, it's actually much harder than that. There's challenges in that field as well that are huge. But when you go non-invasively, you're kind of outside the skin. You're having to fight against evolution and biology in some ways. So all of the body is kind of designed to keep us out. We don't want electricity to be able to easily (laughs) come into our body or go out. We don't want to be able to have somebody just come and touch our heart, right, and see how it's beating. So it becomes a little bit of a challenging signals and system sort of problem and a challenging uh, noise fighting sort of endeavor. But it makes it exciting. Yeah, that's very cool. I've noticed this trend in healthcare recently where everything is becoming more personalized and patient-specific. So why do you think that is important? Oh, I think it's super important. Every person responds very differently to 
treatments. Every person has their own physiology and, and needs and, and experiences. So I'll just give you an example. So one area that we work on is knee health. And if you think about the health of your knees, you can have two people that are exactly the same age, maybe are even same height and weight. Let's say one of them has done a lot of running, weightlifting, and other sorts of impactful activities that may have stressed the knees. Mm -hmm. And maybe the other one was fairly sedentary and, and maybe hasn't done much. It's actually not obvious which one would have more knee-related injuries and arthritis and problems. Typically, the one who has done more of the exercise and that kind of thing, you would think maybe at first would have more issues with their knees. Then again, if somebody's sedentary, then maybe maybe they weigh more. So each person's personal story kind of guides the way that maybe uh, their health problems are showing up. And so each person's personal story also probably guides the way that they should be treated and managed. And that must be challenging for you to design all these personalized devices. Do you have like a, a model for what you for the type of device that you want to do, and then you kind of change it, the parameters depending on the patient? Yeah, in some cases we do. So, for example, we have to size it differently for the for different people. But a lot of times the personalization for us comes on the algorithmic side of things. So in terms of the machine learning algorithms and the way that we're not necessarily collecting the data, but the way that we're taking the data that's collected and extracting information from that, mm. that has to be personalized. And in some ways, what we do is an easier fit for personalization because we work on wearable devices, non-invasive devices that a person could take home with them. So we get more opportunities to see that same person over time. We get to make that person their own control rather than that person being measured against everybody else in a globalized sort of sense, right? Mm -hmm. which is what typical diagnostics is like. So in our case, the fact that they can take the device home with them, wear it maybe every day, whenever it's convenient, and then we can collect data longitudinally over larger periods of time means that we can, in effect, personalize the data, data analysis side of things. You need to, one, they need to be, like we said, specific to everyone, and two, they need to work efficiently but still be simple enough that the patient feels comfortable using them at home without having a doctor present. Yeah, that's a, that's a big challenge in everything we do. And not only feel comfortable, but they may use the device incorrectly. Right, yeah. They may forget to use the device. So a lot of times, the sensors that we work on, we have to add additional sensors that don't monitor the person, but maybe monitor the quality of the data. We also have to work on algorithms that don't necessarily try to extract physiological information, but extract the quality of the data that's being measured. And so a lot of those sorts of techniques are required in this case. Uh, and, and even those lead to really interesting research problems. So, for example, if you take a signal that we're measuring that no one has really measured before, understands very well, how do we quantify the quality of that signal? And it's kind of a chicken or an egg problem <laughs> because at first you have to understand what part of that signal really matters and is important from a health standpoint. But maybe before that you have to understand is the signal of high enough quality where I can trust it? And so which of those really comes first? How can you work on one without mm -hmm. the other? In that sense, we usually step back and go to more like cadaver models or other sorts of basic studies to really understand the signals first. And so I want to know what techniques are commonly used in the field, even though I'm guessing it really varies depending on the disease that you're working on and the type of device that you're working on. Well, 
A, a big push in the field recently has been towards thinking about digital health and digital biomarkers. So we've thought about you know digital technology and kind of the revolution in the sense of our smartphones, computers, you know everything around us. Kind of even these microphones right now <laughs> yeah. are going in analog, but then being digitized right on the output. So. You can kind of think about, of course, everything starts analog, but pretty quickly things are going into the digital domain. And what that means practically is that you can store a lot of information. You can process information pretty easily. It's now in the type of format where computers can kind of get involved and, and do some really cool things. So people are pushing more and more towards this concept of digital biomarkers, which just means a biomarker is typically something objective that's measured about the body. Um, in a traditional sense, people think of biomarkers as coming out of blood. So you measure the blood, let's say, and you estimate cortisol or something, and that could be a biomarker. But more and more of the field is thinking about things like the number of people the person texts, let's say, in their network oh, wow. could be a digital biomarker, right? Or maybe um, the number of times the person was stirring through the night while trying to sleep could be a biomarker. And even there's some really cool work being done. Uh, this is now not, not in my lab, but just and neither of those actually were examples from my lab. I'm just kind of giving an idea of the field. So yes, please. <laughs> there's, this, there's these cool studies that have been done, for example, on human smartphone interactions as a means for quantifying Parkinson's disease state. So oh. there's this, I think it's called Mobile Parkinson Disease Score or something along those lines. Just in the last couple of years where they did a really cool study, the person has to perform some active interactions with the phone, the way that they maybe type or move or hold the phone, then gives a quantifiable metric or biomarker while the person's in their home that could be used to better manage their care. So I think that that part of the field is really exciting and interesting. Yeah, it's awesome. How do you go from successfully designing these um, devices in lab and having these ideas to actually having many or most of the patients with chronic diseases monitor themselves at home and make their experience more comfortable rather than having to go to hospitals constantly? It's a super long road to do I that. Bet, yeah. yeah, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of um, redesigns, design changes, complete philosophical changes. <laughs> uh, and you're lucky if you get there even sending a device home. So. Um, in all of our studies, I would say our goal is to get there. And in many cases, we have gotten there, but in a lot of cases, we're still working on it, and it's going to take time. And a lot of times, the more, the more mature the technology is for measuring things, the quicker, of course, you can get it into the home. Mm -hmm. If something is really new and exciting, then it takes a lot more validation study in lab settings, in, in even clinical settings, right, before you're ready to really send anything home because you don't want to waste people's time. So you don't want yeah. to send something home with them and get data that's not really meaningful or useful. So we're really careful and cognizant about that. Ultimately, is it the decision of the patient or the lab specialist or the doctor? Who decides if the time is right? All of us as a team. These okay. projects are really collaborative. So we always have doctors, a lot of times nurses, Sometimes we involve patients in the decision process also. We always get their feedback on the usability of the system. You know, was it comfortable? Is it something you'd want to use at home? Of course, our researchers on the engineering side, we have to be sort of convinced that data quality is good. Yeah. The device is robust. So it takes, it really is a team effort to get mm. things there. And so what do you think we can do moving on to either speed up that process or 
create new technologies that will help us get there faster. It's really tough. If something is exciting and new and could make a huge impact, it's going to take time to get there. It's hard hard to short circuit that, I think. Um, of course, having more collaborative involvement. So without collaborative teams, there's a lot of engineering projects that just sit on the shelf mm. forever, right? They might be cool from an engineering standpoint, but they're maybe useless from a clinical standpoint. And I think also without collaborative teams, sometimes from the clinical side, they might have ideas that maybe could be very useful clinically, but might not make for interesting engineering research projects. Like they won't have, let's say, much advancement of knowledge in the area of engineering. So those are tough too. But I think when you have collaborative teams, then you're sort of thinking about the whole picture from the start. Yeah, that's a good point. I like to start our collaborations early in the process. That makes sense, yeah. What should scientists expect to be doing in a normal day in lab when you're in this type of field? Um, it's, it's, it really depends. So I'll, I guess, talk about the experiences from our lab. We have some people that are a little more focused on the hardware. So their day might involve soldering, 3D printing cases, testing the hardware to make sure it's functioning well. Uh, at some point after we have IRB approval and everything, getting the device maybe on some uh, subjects who are healthy subjects, trying some measurements, getting a feel for whether the signal quality is good enough trying different types of sensors, characterizing the sensors. So it might be more of a really hardware-focused day. Mm -hmm. Some of our folks that are more involved on the machine learning side of things, their day might be sitting at the computer, getting the data, looking at it, first qualitatively maybe getting a feel for, do I see anything in here that's interesting? Then maybe running it through some algorithms, writing the algorithms from scratch. So thinking about how do we filter out noise? How do we pull out just a couple of features, like characteristics of this data that actually make it useful. You know, mm-hmm. those characteristics somehow map to some health parameters. How do we do that? So their day can be involved with, um, you know, becoming at one with the signal, I guess, <laughs> right? And then then we have some people on our team that are really active on the data collection side of things. So I've had a couple of MD-PhD students in my lab from Emory, Georgia Tech collaboration, and in their case, They might spend a lot of time in the clinic collecting data from patients, interacting with patients and their families, and then going back and doing all that other stuff like analyzing data also. That's cool. But really having an active role in the clinical setting uh, to figure things out. So it really depends. Yeah, it's cool that you have different kind of expertise and then you put it all together. Yeah, we really do. We really do. And it it makes the lab a really fun environment because we have these small teams that work together. And they come from really diverse backgrounds. Uh, our lab is super international, um, pretty well balanced in terms of males and females, about half and half. That's uh, great. Yeah. So it's a really, it's a nice environment to get this sort of work done. Mm-hmm. In the next, like, 10 years, what do you expect it will be, like, the next big thing or either the next big device or the next big disease that we're going to be targeting? Well, one huge area that's maybe not even 10 years, that's still already you're seeing products come out, but I think in the next 10 years may make a huge difference in terms of treatments is the area of neuromodulation. So there's a really interesting initiative. There's different words for it. So neuromodulation therapy, bioelectronic medicine, electroceuticals, but essentially the concept is the same, which is that we have our brain has all of these nerves going everywhere in the body peripherally. If we can somehow key into those nerves and send signals to the brain, could we do things like reduce inflammation 
Or could we, for example, reduce somebody's fight or flight response to a particular type of traumatic reminder? So in our case, for example, we're collaborating with folks at Emory here in psychiatry, radiology, and cardiology on using vagus nerve stimulation for patients with PTSD, especially paired with a traumatic reminder so that maybe we could kind of blunt the body's normal fight or flight response to that traumatic reminder. And it's been really cool. That's so crazy. It really gets me excited because I'm a neuroscientist. So oh. I'm so excited for the next 10 years. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. You got, I think neuroscience is, is a great place to be for the next maybe 50 years. Yeah, right? There's I so agree. much we don't know about the brain and, and the connections. Like I said, peripheral nervous system, central nervous system. It's really poorly understood, but the techniques to be able to understand it are always getting better and better. It'll be an exciting time for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite part about working in this field? Well, so my favorite part of my job, maybe that's a little different than my favorite part of the field, is working with great students. Seeing a student when they come in versus when they're graduating and the tremendous difference there is kind of something that gives you extreme pride. and Mm, must be rewarding. It's really rewarding. It's really rewarding. And And I've seen students that when they're coming in, they have a hard time sort of thinking about the problem, thinking about research overall. And then they're going out as the expert in the world in whatever mm-hmm. area they worked on, right? And that's, that's I would say, the most exciting and rewarding part of, of my job. Being in the area, I don't know. I mean, the combination of the science, clinical aspects, technological challenges and solutions, it's a great place to be. There's a lot of uh, – there's never an end to the problems and, you know, interesting challenges you encounter. Yeah. And I feel like it's going to be a field that is going to – exponentially increase in the amount of research that you do and the accuracy of the research that you do or like the implication of it in clinical science. Yeah, I would think so. I would think so. I don't think it's, uh, we have a lot of problems. Health overall is kind of a grand challenge, right? Yeah. Dealing with this uh, issues around demographics changing, aging, population, uh, dealing with, of course, underserved regions as well both in the U.S., like here in Georgia, rural Georgia would be a great example, and around the world, obviously, in, in you know, developing countries. There's just there's a lot of health-related problems that, that technology could play a big role in, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's going to end in the yeah. next five years. I wish I it would. So. It would be cool. But, well, in some senses, we'll have a lot more to do. Yeah. But, you know, uh, but I, I think there's, there's no way those sorts of problems will end any time in our lifetime. So. So you'll have a job for a long time. We will. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And so um, just to kind of end things, what would be your advice for students thinking of going into this field or starting to do a PhD in this type of work? I think the most important thing in research is being curious and asking really good questions. And those questions, it sounds easy. So it sounds like anybody could do it. But to ask good questions, you have to first understand really well what's known about an area. You have to understand an area well to be able to know what's not known hmm. and then to ask the right questions about that. You also have to play around a little bit to ask the right questions. Like I think the best questions come after a person has worked in an area themselves and figured out with their own interesting experience coming into it, whatever experiences they'd had as a person, whatever educational, personal background they've had coming in, that they dive into some problem area, start working on it, encounter some issues, 
see where the roadblocks are themselves and understand literature. And that's when there's a really good opportunity for them to ask that really mm-hmm. great question that drives their research. And so I think, I guess, two things there. One is you have to be curious and interested to see what those great questions might be. And two is you have to get involved. You can't just be sitting in a space like this by yourself <laughs> thinking, you know, looking at the waiting ceiling. Waiting for the yeah, question to Yeah, waiting come. for something to come. It doesn't work like that. You have to be in it, and then it comes out in the right time. And mm. I think that's when the most interesting innovations and, and uh, research directions come out. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I look forward to seeing more stuff from your lab. Absolutely, and you're welcome to visit anytime. I think <laughs> that'll be you. great. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone you think would be interested. Well, share it even if you don't think they'd be interested, because you never know. Follow Future Directions on Instagram and Twitter, and let me know what you think. Let's create a community of forward thinkers. See you next time.